You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Well, morning again. Um, I hope you've had a good week. Um, I turned 45 this week, halfway to 90. Um, <laughs> I don't believe it. Like I'll become more curmudgeonly and grumpy the older I get. Um, and uh, also, I don't know about you, but this cold, the worst cold since records began has been doing the rounds, hasn't it? And um, I don't feel like it was quite that bad. It was probably only a minor thing, but my aging body was sort of struck by it last week. So unfortunately, I wasn't here. So I do hope that you enjoyed the story Sunday, if you were here. I've heard very good reports. So well done, Rob, and everyone who was involved. Thanks, Erin, for sharing. It was great. Um, This morning we're going to be in the book of Philippians again, Uh, but to kind of get us thinking about Philippians, I I want you to think a little bit about what is possibly one of the the best things about being human, even an aging human. Uh, One of the best things, one of the things that gives human beings such dignity, if you like, is that unique capacity that we have to formulate goals and to work effectively towards them. I mean, just pause for a moment and think what life would be like without the God-given capacity to formulate a goal and then to accomplish it. I mean, we might still be living in caves and rubbing sticks together to make a fire. I mean, we might have to reprise that if energy companies keep going bust at the rate they are. But joking aside, the human capacity to to be goal-setting, to imagine a better future and then to work towards that future has enriched our common life in innumerable ways. And I, for one, think it's right to be enthusiastic about this human capacity and to encourage it even, and to celebrate it, and I hope that you do as well. Even if, from a Christian perspective... Any enthusiasm about human ingenuity ought to be tempered somewhat by the knowledge of human sinfulness. The human creature is a noble ruin from the perspective of Christian theology. The fall of humankind has not eradicated every trace of God from human lives, but it has distorted it. That means that even the highest and noblest goal or accomplishment is somehow still tainted by sin. And some goals are, well, they are quite simply shot through, riddled with sin. Now, as a Christian believer, it doesn't really matter that much whether you are optimistic about the capacity of fallen humans to do good or pessimistic about that capacity. But what you cannot be as a Christian believer is naive about human life and what it means to be human and the great capacity that we have for planning and achieving, but the great sense of fallenness and brokenness that belongs to our human condition too. 
Now, I'm talking about all this human capacity for making and achieving goals this morning because I would like to reflect with you on what might be called some uniquely Christian goals. Now, we're not just talking about, well, I thought it would be a good idea to build a shed. Um, that would be a bad idea for me. Um, you would see very, very quickly how shot through my life is with sin, not just in the fact that the shed would be wonky, but probably in the fact that I would have hurt somebody in the process because I was in a terrible mood because it wasn't going very, very well. I want to reflect with you on what might be called uniquely Christian goals. And as I mentioned, we've been working our way through this ancient Christian text, which is the Apostle Paul's letter to the church community in the city of Philippi. And so today we're going to hear Paul talk about a goal, a goal that is simultaneously deeply personal to him, but also universal for all Christians. And so on the screens in a moment will come some words from the book of Philippians. And if you've got a Bible or a device with the scriptures on it, it's a really good idea if you could open it up to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, you might want to sort of just glance back now and again just to sort of compare what's being said from here. You know, please don't assume that because I stand about a foot above the floor with a thing in front of me that that means that everything that I say about Scripture is right. You must be gauging what I say on the basis of what you read in Scripture, not just taking it all in and going, oh, yes, 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 very nice, and then finding later on down the road that it's a cult. Um, that, that wouldn't be very good for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> like it'd be a cult. That's probably what they all say. Anyway, never mind. So Philippians chapter 3. This is verses, verse 10 to 12. Paul writes, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal. Ha ha ha. Do you see where this is going? But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Um, Before I say anything else about this, you'll note that I've squeezed these two, the end of one paragraph and the start of another together. Um, Because in most translations, English translations and printed translations of the Bible, there's a, a grave error made because most of them, the, the, the editors have put in some bold heading above where Paul says, not that I have already obtained this. It's a mistake because it gives the impression that it's divided up what went before and now what follows on. And I would contend with you that you cannot really make proper sense of the second half of what we've read there without understanding the first half. And sometimes editors have made a bit of a whoopsie by separating out the text, where in actual fact it would have all been together. So just an aside, that's why it's all been lumped together on the screen like that. Now let me cut to the chase in a sense. Let's get right to the heart of it, right to the nub of the thing this morning. Everything else is going to flow out of this one thing that Paul has in his heart here today. Paul's goal is the resurrection from the dead. That's what he says. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection, the sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, I haven't got there yet, but I make it my goal. 
His aim, his focus, his goal as a believer, you know, it's not even a ministry goal. It's his goal as a Christian. I want to attain to the resurrection from the dead. He doesn't mean Jesus' resurrection. He doesn't mean, well, one day I would like to really believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. He means his own, and by implication, the resurrection of every other believer. You see, Paul, just like many other Jews of his era, believed that at a point in the future, God would raise the dead to life. It would be a day of vindication, of reward, and a day of judgment and of putting things to right. When the dead were raised, everyone who had been faithful to God would be ushered into a new age where unrighteousness and corruption and wickedness and sin could dwell no longer. The surprise for Paul was that God had done exactly that by by raising Jesus from the dead. Not at the end of history, but slap bang in the middle of it. And not along with everybody else, but as one individual person. And so Paul had to rethink his entire understanding of the big word coming up here, I'm just going to telegraph that, of eschatology, about the end times, about future hope, about what God will do. Everything in Paul's life, his understanding, gets reshaped and reformed around Christ crucified and raised from the dead. Maybe we could say that Paul learned that God reserves the right to do what you hoped he would do, but in a way that looks much different to how you thought he would. That could be a good lesson for most of us in a 21st century world. You like to think that we've got God on a string sometimes, and God's very predictable. Well, no, God's very faithful. Predictability is a different thing. Jesus' resurrection made Paul rethink everything. Made him rethink what he'd hoped or assumed about God's plan, about his own resurrection. It became the guarantee for Paul that the dead would indeed be raised. If Christ is raised from the dead because he represents the whole of his people, then surely we all will be raised with him. And anyone who believes that Christ is raised receives the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of their own future resurrection with Christ. It's a down payment, the scriptures say. It's a foretaste, an hors d'oeuvre of the age to come, a receiving of the Spirit. What we did this morning, speaking in tongues, is just one tiny little hinter presence of God by his spirit amongst his people, just a hint, it points us toward the resurrection from the dead. So there we go, that's Paul's goal, it is to attain the resurrection from the dead. That becomes the driving passion of his life, if you like, where it's all headed. Now, did Paul invite Jesus into his life in order to get help in attaining his own goals, or did Jesus gate-crash Paul's life and do a hard reset on Paul's whole 
goal-formulating apparatus. See, on one hand, Paul's goal of attaining the resurrection is something that's completely out of his control, isn't it? Sometimes you can read this text, or some commentators have read it, and said, well, it sounds like Paul thinks that he can actually earn, or somehow by what he does, gain the resurrection from the dead. But really, Paul knows this is out of my hands. It's not something that I can accomplish myself. I mean, who can raise themselves from the dead? But on the other hand, Paul says he presses on towards this all-encompassing goal. He doesn't have a laissez-faire attitude about the resurrection. He's not kind of, oh, well, you know, we'll see how it goes one day, you know, when they might get around to it, you know, like building a shed in the garden. You know, one day I might get, one day the resurrection, yeah, lovely. No, 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 no. He pushes on. He presses on. There's an urgency. But even the urgency he attributes to Jesus when he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. God in Christ has apprehended Paul, taken divine ownership of this man, rewired his desires, his goal-formulating apparatus, reshaped it around the person of Jesus, and given Paul a sense of urgency and zeal that he could never have known himself in his previous life as a Pharisee. On occasions, the way that Jesus gets talked about, well, either by Christians or by those who are not Christians at times, could give the impression that Jesus Christ exists to help people to achieve their own goals, right? You know this, don't you? I'm sure you've heard this kind of thing before. Inner peace, a sense of purpose to life, better relationships, the security of belonging to a community, healing, whether it's physical, emotional, or psychological, better career prospects, a moral compass to live by or even to try and force others to live by. Jesus, I invited him in to help me to do these things. Jesus helps me accomplish my goals. You know, none of those things are wrong per se, are they? Every single one of those are honourable human goals to an extent, and they should be encouraged as such. But here's the niggling thing. What happens to the uniqueness of the Christian hope for the resurrection when Christian believers assume that Jesus is mainly interested in helping them achieve those goals? Well, we've got Paul's goal, the resurrection from the dead, that I make it my goal, my aim, my all-encompassing passion, the resurrection from the dead. And 2,000 years later, Christians are inviting Jesus into their life and hoping that it will give them a little bit more of a sense of purpose. Do you not see the slight disparity between Paul's eschatological goal that shapes everything in the present And sometimes what can be trivial, even if legitimate goals. Maybe in a moment of searing honesty, you might admit that other goals at times crowd out that goal, that uniquely Christian goal of attaining the resurrection from the dead in your own life. 
perhaps a sermon or a song or something happens, some event in life, and then a fresh wave of zeal grips you and you think, I just need to reshuffle everything. I just need to, to, to change everything around a little bit and a new commitment to live for God and to get everything right, to get my house in order, so to speak. And sometimes it's driven by guilt and sometimes it doesn't last very long because it's driven by guilt because guilt never really produces fruit in the long term. And we shuffle things about a little bit and we try and focus a little bit more on the resurrection or something like that. But what if it isn't quite that simple? What if it isn't the case that we've taken a bunch of lesser goals and made them more important than the resurrection from the dead? I mean, no Christian would say that, would they? Oh yes, this is more important than that. Of course not. What if instead we've collapsed the hope of our future resurrection into the present? What if we've taken something that in Christian life belongs out there as a future hope beyond us and we've just folded it all into our present personal experience in this moment? What I mean is this, the longing for wholeness, for completeness, for joy and peace and healing and security, even, I might say, the longing for the world to be made right, for injustices to cease. These longings that historically belonged to the Christian hope of the resurrection of the dead and the new heavens and the earth that God will create in the age to come, those hopes that were attached to eschatology are very often now exclusively focused on my life here in the present. Peace, wholeness, joy, contentment, healing of the world, dealing with injustices. We've taken eschatology and we've folded it into life now. And really and truly, friends, all we're doing is repeating the mistakes of the church at the turn of the 19th, 20th century where the church lost its nerve with its proclamation of the gospel in the Western world and started to go along with the modern project and thought, hey, here we are, Christians have got something that can change the world, the moral teachings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. If if we could just get people to see the moral genius of Jesus' teachings, then the world would change. Well, the world did change. Two world wars. Whoopsie. You see, it's a mistake to fold eschatology into the present life and just try and make it work by means of human ingenuity. Because... In the Christian tradition, our hope for wholeness, contentment, joy, peace, restoration, and everything is in the age to come. Christians are pilgrims, not permanent residents, if you like. We are on a journey, and there is a goal that Paul articulated for us as attaining to the resurrection of the dead. And woe betide us if we turn from that goal 
and try to make the world different today and think that that is the sum total of Christian eschatology. It's not. There are all kinds of reasons for this phenomenon, this sort of shrinking down of eschatology into our present experience as Christians. But I'm going to have to just limit it to to half this morning, one this morning. This is the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. He's been around a while. He's nearer to 90 than me by the looks of it. Charles Taylor wrote a huge book called A Secular Age. And Charles Taylor's book, in a nutshell, says something like this. It says, like it or not, whether you are a religious person or not, the cultural air that we breathe is secular. And one of the marks of living in a secular age is that it's disenchanted. Disenchanted. What that means is that there are no higher goals for human life, nothing transcendent, nothing that explodes out, that is beyond human minds and human actions. There are no transcendent realities, no gods or angels or demons or spirits or whatever else like that that can command either our fear or our fierce allegiance. There is nothing that is other. Existence is flat. We've moved from talking about a cosmos, which is a multi-layered reality, to a universe that some physicists believe actually is flat, weirdly. Spirituality is inward, personal, private, local. Everything is imminent, not imminent, imminent, here, close, now. Reality has been disenchanted, and life is kind of suffocating as a result. Now, because these are, by and large, the lived conditions of all of us Westerners in the 21st century, whether you realize it or not, It means that our goals have subtly shifted. The focus has shifted away from things like the resurrection of the dead as an eschatological future hope that is not just doing things here. And so now when somebody hears someone say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, they probably interpret that prayer as something like this. Let humans flourish. Because the hope of the gospel and the uniqueness of Jesus and the uniqueness of the Christian hope of the resurrection from the dead has been flattened, packaged, and folded into the present so that everything now is on a one level and it is all about making our life more tolerable. Now please don't misunderstand me. There is absolutely nothing wrong whatsoever with human flourishing by itself. Nothing. Nobody wants to insist upon humans suffering. Nobody wants to triumph and shout about injustice. Not many people anyway. But there's quite a lot wrong with a church that has lost its nerve And when the church loses its nerve about holding to the goal of the resurrection from the dead as the ultimate 
location, if you like, of human flourishing and healing and the renewal of creation and all of those things, when we lose sight of that goal, we can no longer say things like this. Okay? Yes, we know that there is loads wrong with the world and that if we all focused our energies and pooled our resources, we could accomplish a great deal. But what you are asking us to do is reduce our confession of Jesus and the hope of the resurrection by collapsing it into a social agenda where the uniqueness of Christ is diminished to the point that it is meaningless. We can sympathize, of course, with your concerns because we also participate in human life on this planet, but we simply cannot subscribe to the idea that our uniquely Christian hope for the resurrection of the dead and a new heavens and earth can be repackaged and pressed into the service of a secular humanist agenda, no matter how closely aligned our goals may appear. When the church loses its nerve about the resurrection, it's unable to make bold, theologically coherent, theologically freestanding comments and statements like that because the church has been robbed of the centrally unique elements of its confession. Now, I don't want to discourage anyone here this morning from giving time and energy to things that are areas of deep concern for you. I don't want anyone here to assume that the will of God is for you to live a piously miserable life. It doesn't glorify God to be piously miserable. But what I do want to do is encourage you to stand firm in your hope of the resurrection of the dead, not to reshuffle the pieces and to double down on your efforts to live for God, but to think and to reflect, to think hard until it impacts your thoughts and your heart about what true Christian hope is. I want you to stand firm and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ as the one and the only means whereby human lives can begin to be filled, lifted, rescued, restored, and the resurrection of the dead as the only true climax of that work. Now, I've tried to deliberately stretch you intellectually a bit this morning. I didn't tell you at the beginning because you'd have all switched off. I know the way it works. Oh. Out comes the phone. I'll pretend I'm looking at the scriptures. I'm really playing Candy Crush. <laughs> if you're laughing, it's you, isn't it? <laughs> I've deliberately tried to stretch you. I've not done it because I think, well, okay, I've said that I'm doing a PhD now, and now I have to, every week, deliver a lecture that is postgraduate theology level. Don't worry. I won't be doing that. I've tried to stretch you intellectually and theologically and possibly even existentially because I think that Christians have got a huge responsibility, a massive job of work on their hands in the 21st century 
And it isn't a job of work that is. We've got to really look like we're part of the gang and like work hard with everybody else for everybody. Nah. That's not the danger. The responsibility is to be more and more and more convinced, assured, and confident that our future hope is the, the appearing of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead and a new heavens and a new earth. And that whatever else we do in terms of social action or whatever else, however else we might want to frame those things, that they do not collapse our hope into just working here in the present. We've got to reflect then on how our unique Christian goals could be sidetracked or diverted or even simply lost. Now for the last couple of minutes before we break bread, I want us to come back to the first half of the scripture reading. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, the goal is inseparable from Jesus, really. Jesus isn't simply the means to an end for Paul. Well, Jesus is the way that I get the resurrection, and the God is the resurrection, and thank you, Jesus. I'm, hey. No, no. The whole of Paul's life is shaped by his desire to share in Jesus, to participate in Jesus. And if that means sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in death, which, as he says in Philippians 2, is about being humbled even to the point of death on a cross then he's all in with that. If that means resurrection from the dead, if this is the way that God is going to put all things to rights, then count me in and let everything else stink and be rubbish in comparison to this one thing. You see what happens when you collapse the goal of the future resurrection into let humans flourish What happens when you do that move is you reduce Jesus as well. You make less of Jesus. You turn Jesus into the personal demigod, saviour, who comes alongside me as a mate or a buddy or a helper. Now, he can be all of those things, but he is Lord of all And the Christian call is not to have Jesus help you on your way for a season when you're down and out. The Christian call is to attain the resurrection from the dead by means of following Jesus, even if it means suffering unto death, in order to attain the resurrection. So don't reduce Jesus by reducing the goal. Don't reduce Jesus. Don't disenchant Jesus, if you like, to use Charles Taylor's language. By taking him from his place of supreme authority over all things and making him an idol who sits in your life, who you refer to occasionally as you seek a slightly better lot than your tortured Western existential situation. God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We started talking about human goals. I brought you in to look at and to consider Paul's goal. Well, here's God's goal. The universal and full acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as Lord at the end of the age. If we're working toward anything, brothers and sisters, it is that. Our resurrection, yes. But God's great goal is the universal acclaim that belongs to Jesus. And everything that we do in the present age must be ordered to that end if it is going to be truly Christian ministry, truly Christian activity, truly Christian thought, belief, prayer, praise, prose. The white heart's insistence that human flourishing will be fulfilled in the resurrection of the dead and that the goal of God is the universal acclaim of his son, who is Lord and King. So we've not been called to collapse the future into the presence in the name of human flourishing, but to seek our own and the world's greatest flourishing in the resurrection of the dead. We do that not by reducing or disenchanting Jesus, but by living lives of faithful obedience to the way of King Jesus, the Lord, as a witness to his death, his resurrection, and his lordship. I'd love us to sing, uh, or for guys to lead us in the song that will help us just to express maybe in worship these things. And then we're going to break bread together to finish. And Paul says to the Corinthian church that when we break bread and drink wine, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in this meal, we have a true expression of something that is here but that also points to a completion. Here is the beginnings of healing and renewal and forgiveness. Here is a broken body that leads to a complete, whole, restored body. Here is sacrificial love that is gathering up the broken pieces of our lives, not to somehow magic away everything bad now, but to carry us to a place of wholeness at his appearing.